Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law, now coming to you live from our newest offices in lovely Northfield, Illinois, just down the street from Northbrook. Uh, but we are all settled in and uh, great dead vibes going on here in my own space so I can decorate it accordingly and get all my posters up. Very excited about that. Uh, just a great show today. Uh, really uh, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, October 16th, 1989, as you know, is a show we've, we've often talked about and featured on the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Uh, today is Bob Weir's birthday, everyone. Um, and uh, his birthday show at Brendan Byrne in 1989 is one of my favorites. It's one of Rob Hunt's favorites. It's just got a killer dark star, great stuff. However, there's another show from October 16th, 1981, that's simply too cool to pass up. Uh, it's from uh, the Milkweg Club in Amsterdam. And let's dive right into the first clip. That's The Race Is On, and that's uh, uh, a song from the first set of the October 16th, 1981 show at the Milkweg Club in Amsterdam, a very, very famous, well-known hash bar, uh, and 42 years ago today. Uh, it was actually the second of a two-night stand at this famous venue, uh, and the room, in, it's a multi-roomed facility, and in the room in which the show was being performed only held just about 500 people, which probably makes it one of the smallest dead shows, uh, probably outside of the acid tests. Um, or uh, the really early club days for the Grateful Dead in 66 and 67, maybe. Um, I would happen to be at the uh, Milkweg once in 1988 with my good buddies, Mikey, who I talk about often on this show, and another good friend of mine, H. It was our highlight of our trip. We had a lot of fun. And uh, at the time, that was about as cool as it got to be out in civilized society uh, and be able to po purchase and consume uh, cannabis products, hashish mostly, and a few strains of marijuana, but some that we had never heard of and some that got us just silly high. And uh, yeah, it was very, very cool. Uh, you know, by almost 30 years, a precursor to being able to uh, smoke legally in uh, the United States and in, in my state where I live now of Illinois. So uh, a, a very cool time to be able to actually experience that and uh, two good buddies to be there with. It was really a lot of fun. Another good friend of mine and uh, big deadhead, Freddie Burp, was spending the school year abroad in 1981. And he was one of the lucky few who actually were present for this show on the 16th. However, he's a tough guy to get a hold of. Maybe someday I can get him on the show to talk about this concert. But today it's just me. Uh, but I've been listening to this show forever. And uh, for so many times, uh, part of it is that this show had an acoustic first set and electric second set. Uh, many of the songs in the acoustic first set uh, we already talked about and featured on our show a couple of weeks ago from the September 90, 1980 show at the Warfield Theater as part of that string of shows at the Warfield and Radio City Music Hall in New York uh, with acoustic and then two electric sets at each show. And they took the uh, recordings from the acoustic, acoustic sets for their Reckoning album, which came out in uh, late 1980 or early 1981. So this was kind of modeled in the same form as the... Uh, as those shows they had they went with the acoustic set and then electric uh so since we had already done a bunch of those shows uh, i wanted to try and see if i could find at least one that i hadn't played yet and uh, the race is on is has always been one of my favorites ever since my good buddy mikey again who took me to three of my first dead shows uh used to play it for me as we drove through the northwoods of wisconsin on nights out from the summer camp and we were spending the summer in 1981 uh with a bunch of our other friends and everything else but mike and i uh, were specialists not cabin counselors so we would get out early and go 
out and about before the, everyone else uh, could finally stumble out and meet us at the bar. And so uh, we played the Reckoning album a lot. And uh, the race is on is great, especially, uh, you know, the, the play-by-play track call. Uh, it's a song that was written by Don Rollins and made a hit on country music charts by George Jones and on the pop and easy, li- easy listening charts by the unrelated Jack Jones. George's version was the first single released from his 1965 album of the same name, Released as a single in September 1964, it peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot Country Singles Chart and number 96 on the Billboard's Hot 100 in January 1965. Jack's version tops Billboard's Easy Listening Chart and reached number 15 on the Hot 100 the same year. The two recordings combined to reach number 12 on the Cashbox Charts, which combined all covers of the same song in one listing and thus gave George Jones his only top 40 hit. The song uses thoroughbred horse racing as the metaphor for the singer's romantic relationships. Rockabilly artist Dave Edmonds, in collaboration with the Stray Cats, uh, whose debut album Edmonds had recently produced a version of in 1981 for his album Twangin', uh, Stray Cats drummer, uh, excuse me, Slim Jim Phantom, recalled Edmonds' affection for the song when he was courting the band to play their debut album. We met with Edmonds at his house. He had a little pub in the basement. He had just finished the basement outside of London. He had a jukebox. He had the races on and Rockabilly Boogie by Johnny Burnett. We had those songs on his jukebox. We looked at each other and said, this is it. Phantom also recalled that the song took one or two takes in the studio. It was covered by Jack Jones, Loretta Lynn, Alvin and the Chipmunks for their 1965 album, Chipmunks a Go-Go, Waylon Jennings, the Georgia Satellites from their 1985 debut album, Keep the Faith, Elvis Costello and others. The Dead wound up playing it just about 60 times in concert. They first played it on December 31st, 1969 at the uh, Boston Tea Party in Boston. And they last played it on May 20th, 1995 at the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl in Las Vegas. And so, in fact, um, the the song did have a long shelf life or excuse me, a long active life, uh, even outside of it being a favorite when the Dead played acoustic sets, meaning it got played electric a lot more than it got played acoustic. So let's stop for a second here and focus back in on the uh, setting in which uh, the Grateful Dead find themselves on this particular occasion uh, at the Milkwag in uh, Amsterdam. And of course, the question had to be asked, how do they get there? What are they doing there? Why are they there? Um, well, uh, from one of the Grateful Dead dead sites, where, dead sites where they have the daily dose of the day, this is what we learn. The Grateful Dead playing on borrowed instruments in a hash bar in Amsterdam on Bob Weir's birthday with an opening acoustic set and an electric second set featuring several rarities and the return of a beloved classic. This is one of the most exciting and freewheeling dead shows in the canon. How do the Grateful Dead, Dead end up playing two nights, October 15th and 16th, in a club with a capacity of approximately 500 people when they were selling out much larger venues all across Western Europe on this fall tour? Apparently, it came down to the weather. The Dead were supposed to have played two shows in the south of France after their October 13th concert in West Germany, but those gigs were canceled due to inclement weather. Instead of sitting around for four days until their next scheduled show in Paris on the 17th, the band decided to go to Amsterdam and play there. But the road crew refused to haul the band's equipment to the Netherlands, so the dead had to use what they found at the club while the roadies went ahead and set up the show in Paris. The show on the 15th was pretty cool, but it was just a warm-up act for this one on the 16th. First set is all acoustic, is filled with the same songs that the, that the band had played last year or in, in 1980 during the acoustic electric shows in San Francisco and New York. The difference between those shows, which were being recorded for what turned out to be the live album Reckoning, uh, and these performances is the looseness of the execution here. In Amsterdam, the band is completely relaxed, surprise, surprise, uh, laughing through the, uh, some sound issues on the road again and playfully passing licks back and forth throughout the set. There's nothing really surprising going on musically other than the acoustic format, which is obviously very surprising in and of itself, but that's not the point. This is just music that makes you feel good, played by people who are clearly enjoying themselves, especially when it comes to the set ending Ripple. Speaking of Ripple, this is the second to last time the Dead would ever play it, but you'd have to wait seven years before you get to that final performance at the Cap Center in 1988, which we talked about last week or two weeks ago. The second set here is where things really get cooking both historically and from a performance standpoint. Start with a pretty fair plane in the band that morphs into the first and only performance of the Olympics, Holly Gully. Holly Gully segues into the fast-paced version of The Wheel and Samson and Delilah. 
before the dead light off on a first ever performance of Them's Gloria, which the band proceeded to rock the hell out of. As Gloria starts down, we slows down, we start to hear a familiar bass line and are treated to the first post pig pen version of Turn On Your Love Light, which had laid dormant since the 1972 European tour. Bob Weir gives the vocals his all in what is probably an emotional return to the classic showstopper. From there, the band rips off and almost out of hand going down the road feeling bad before returning to playing in the band once more. But we're not done yet. After playing collapses, the dead slow things down with Black Peter before blowing the lid off the joint with the show closing Sugar Magnolia. Uh, there's almost nothing jammy about this show at all, which is somewhat surprising given the setting. Even playing in the band doesn't really venture far into the cosmos. But that doesn't matter at all, because on this night, the dead give us a tender acoustic display, followed by a forceful rock and roll show that ventured as close as to the band's roots as they would ever get during the 80s and 90s. This must this is must have stuff, folks. So, you know, this is uh, a highly thought of show by so many people. And, uh, you know, that just gives it a, a feeling for what we're talking about. But uh, let's go ahead and uh, dive right into that ripple that they were talking about because uh, this is as pretty a ripple as you'll ever hear. If your cup be empty If your cup is full May it be again Let it be known There is a fountain ripple everybody loves ripple you can sing along to it you can listen to it it can make you feel better it can make you feel sad uh just a beautiful 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 tune played not nearly as often as uh deadheads would have preferred and we prominently featured this song a few weeks ago when we talked about the uh, warfield show and talked about how it was last played ever on september 3rd 1988 at the cap center uh, but what makes this version we just listened to so special, as, as I just mentioned a minute ago, is that this is the last ripple ever played by the Grateful Dead until that Cap Center show, a seven-year gap. And that was it, no more ripple. So this is the last acoustic ripple ever played since the Cap Center was an electric version. Maybe the most famous Dead tune ever from American Beauty, Hunter's lyrics and Jerry's music mesh together in a way that make this tune not just one of the best Dead tunes ever, but one of the best tunes ever in my humble opinion. And uh, clearly folks at the uh, Milkweg must have felt like they uh, had won the lottery when not only did they get to see the dead there, but they were treated to acoustic sets like this and the opportunity to hear Ripple, uh, some of these other acoustic tunes we've been talking about. Uh, and as near as I can tell, that was the last full acoustic set uh, that the Grateful Dead ever played in concert. So um, very, very memorable uh, thoughts from that evening. And if and when we... Uh, get Freddie Burp on this show. He will walk us through it all uh, as only he can. Before we march on with this show, another Grateful Dead news. Yesterday, uh, October 15th, marked the 50th anniversary of the release of the Grateful Dead album, Wake of the Flood. came out on October 15th, 1973. It was the Grateful Dead's sixth studio album, 10th album overall, uh, and it was the first album on the band's own Grateful Dead Records label, their first studio album in nearly three years. It was also the first without founding member Rod Pigpen McKernan, who had recently died. His absence and keyboardist Keith Gauchow's penchant for bebop and model jazz, rather than Pigpen's tendencies towards the blues and uh, rhythm and blues, contributed to the band's musical evolution. Gauchow's wife, vocalist Donna Jean Gauchow, also joined the group 
and appears on the album. The release fared better on the pop charts than their previous studio album, American Beauty, reaching number 18. And I'm just going to stop there to say that's pretty amazing. Wake of the Flood is an incredible album, uh, but American Beauty, boy, maybe that's just an album that you know took people a while to, to really get hooked on. After three live albums in a row, the Grateful Dead wanted to record studio versions of songs written since Keith had joined the band. At the time of recording, five of the songs on the album and part of the six had been in live rotation for up to a year and a half as arrangements were road tested and finalized. Referring to this period, bassist Phil Lesh explained, we learned to break in the material at shows, under fire as it were, rather than to try and work it out at rehearsals or in the studio at tremendous expense. The new compositions drew on many of the band's influences, blending genres from country folk and R&B to ragtime and jazz rock, the latter being more prominent than previously. As had become routine, Hunter and Garcia wrote the majority of the songs. Uh, Bobby contributed the epic Weather Report suite with lyrics by uh, John Barlow. The prelude section of this piece had been developed on stage, but the part one and part two, Let It Grow, debuted after the album's recording. Let Me Sing Your Blues Away is the band's only singing songwriting contribution from Keith Gauchow. It was performed live just six times in September 1973 between the recording and the release of the album. Describing Gauchow's influence, drummer Bill Kreutzmann characterized the album as Keith's coming out party, remarking on the evolution in style. Kreutzmann remembered, Jerry brought Roe Jimmy into us one day, and it was really difficult to get a grip on it at first. It has a slow tempo, which makes it seem like it would be easy, but it calls for a slightly reggae groove layered over a ballad. Rhythmically, the lengths aren't traditional. They're not just twos and fours. It's deceiving. Basically, you have to play the song in halftime with a double-time bounce on top. It's trickier than it sounds. But once I locked onto it, Road Jimmy became one of the best songs in our repertoire. The band chose to record at the recently built record plant between August 14th and 15th, 1973, in Sausalito, near their San Rafael home base, uh, it had been used by Cohart's new writers of the Purple Sage for their successful album, The Adventures of Panama Red. Uh, Wake of the Flood, the uh, album title, comes from the opening stanza of the song, Here Comes Sunshine, Wake of the Flood, Laughing Water, 49. Get out the pans, don't just stand there dreaming, get out the way. Uh, it sounds great spoken, it sounds even better sung, and it sounds amazingly better sung by Garcia, so I'm not going to go down that road. Uh, but it is a poetic reference to the historic flood in Vanport, Oregon, a site where the dead would play in 1995. Though lyrically, the song continued America, uh, Hunter's Americana theme. A thread of earth seasons and life cycles connects the material, particularly with B Weir and Barlow's culminating suite. All the songs, but let me sing your blues away, in the first part of Weather Report suite remained in set lists throughout the existence of the band though Here Comes Sunshine was absent from February 23rd, 1974, until they brought it back out in December 1992. Weir had played the finger-picked prelude for months before attaching it to Weather Report Suite, ultimately dropping all but the Let It Grow section after 1974. Though the album's version is concise, Eyes of the World in particular had already become an extended jam set piece and would remain so. Eyes of the World, I think, is the deceptively best Grateful Dead song out there, meaning everybody hears it, everybody knows it's good. But when you start talking about best dead, uh, dead songs of all time, uh, sometimes it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. But on any given night when I'm at a show, I will take a hot Eyes of the World over just about anything else uh, that the boys might tee up. And yes, the, the full Weather Report suite is absolutely wonderful, especially on the album. Uh, Jerry's contribution on the first part, Bobby's contribution on the second part, uh, and it was a shame that the first part was dropped so quickly uh, from the uh, concert song list because what, how great it was. So Wake of the Flood uh, is Mississippi Hapst up Uptown Tootaloo, Let Me Sing Your Blues Away, Road Jimmy, Stella Blue, Here Comes Sunshine, Eyes of the World, and Weather Report Suite. If you get to uh, dead.net fast enough and you can still get your hands on the 50th anniversary uh, release, it then throws on bonus tracks, a demo of Eyes of the World and a demo of Here Comes Sunshine, plus a second disc uh, featuring material live, Grateful Dead, uh, McGaw Memorial Hall at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, about two minutes from my house, on November 1st, 1973, opening with a weather report suite, Morning Dew into playing in the band, into Uncle John's band, back into playing in the band and closing out 
with the Mississippi Half, half Step Uptown Toodaloo. I've listened to the whole thing, folks. It's fantastic. Jump and get it while you can. Uh, a great album. Uh, 50 years ago yesterday and uh, there's a few other albums coming right down the line here within the next year or two they're going to also be hitting 50 and we will be on top of those we'll probably have a day or two where we devote to albums and just go back and play some of them because we talk about them a lot we don't really seem to feature them all that much however back to what we have here today which is the show from the Milkweg on uh Uh, October 16th, 1981. And this next song that we're going to play comes in the second set in their electric set. Um, It's a really funky tune called Holly Gully. So listen to it and then we can discuss. Gully is a funky tune. It's one that I had heard uh, early on because I listened, I had heard copies of this show. And for some reason, it really just kind of stuck in my mind, A, that maybe it was a dead tune from the pig pen days. And, uh, you know, maybe they were just bringing it back. But oh, no, I little did I know until I uh, actually learned. Uh, Holly Gully, in fact, is a song written by Fred Sledge Smith and Cliff Goldsmith and recorded by the Olympics, an American doo-wop group formed in 1957 was released in 1959 on their album, Doing the Holly Gully. It peaked at number 72 on the Billboard Hot 100 in February 1960 and sparked the Holly Gully dance craze. I didn't do any research on that, so you can or just let your imagination wander as to what that might all mean. Uh, but it's a snappy tune. It's got a great beat. You really start tapping your feet to it. And it was covered by a number of people. Buddy Guy, Chubby Checkers, The Ventures covered it, The Beach Boys, uh, a number of other bands, and for those of you uh, who are my age or Dan's age and you're old enough to remember the old Peter Pan peanut butter advertising jingle from the 1980s. And again, you'll have to forgive my attempt at singing, but uh, just imagine if you use that beat from Holly Holly Gully and add it to Peter Pan peanut butter. And yep, that's what we remember hearing. Of course, we were out of our early years at that point, but nevertheless, we appreciated the uh, the spirit and the uh, and the beat of the uh, of the tunes that they were using to uh, sell it. Interestingly, notwithstanding my earlier thoughts, it turned out that this version of this song from this show is the only time the Grateful Dead ever played Holly Gully live in concert. It was never recorded. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it's not on any of the live albums that they've ever released. And uh, this is it, folks. If you want to hear Holly Gully, you got to go to archive.org or find somebody who has a tape of the show and find this version of it from October 16th, 1981 at the Milkweg. And uh, in talking to Freddie Burp about it in the past, he has assured me uh, that it was a well-received song. Uh, people were all scratching their heads uh, trying to figure out uh, it was a familiar tune. Uh, very few people uh, are going to honestly tell you that they've heard of the Olympics because not many of us have. I haven't. Uh, probably my good buddy Alex has, but, you know, he's the exception to anything. And I'm sure if Rob were here, he's probably heard of him too. Uh, but that's just, you know, guys who are alpha males when it comes to knowing their rock and roll, uh, their rock and roll music category. So all credit to them guys. Uh, but it's a great song and it was a lot of fun. And, you know, it's one of those things, either you're at the Milkweg when the dead decide to come there just because it was raining in the South and they couldn't go down there and play. So they say, ah, what the heck? 
no, nobody planned their their trip to Amsterdam or to their their trip to the Milkweg. Certainly not at least the first night, the night before the fifteenth, anticipating seeing the Grateful Dead there. Grateful Dead there, and then lo and behold, there they are. And so by the fifteenth, I guess more people knew by the sixteenth. But still, unless you were one of the first five hundred or so to get there, you weren't getting in. So you know, talk about a really really uh, statistically small group of people who got to hear all of this. And, and, and just what a tremendous street, you know, you, you, you can't ever pass these opportunities up because you never know what the dead are going to play. And, uh, you know, to come out and play Hully Gully uh, is just absolutely great. I love the way they jam it out at the end and give it a little bit of a, a dead feel um, and then uh, move on. And in fact, uh, the song that the dead move on to at this point um is a song uh, that everybody knows and everybody's heard. And uh, on this particular night, the dad decided that they could play it too. That's Gloria, a song written by the Northern Irish pop singer, songwriter Van Morrison. Uh, what I didn't know, it was originally recorded by Van Morrison's band, Them, in 1964. It was released as the B-side of Baby Please Don't Go, another well-known Van Morrison rocker, on December uh, 14th, 1960, excuse me, December 2nd, 1964. The song became a garage rock staple and a part of many rock bands' repertoires. According to Morrison, he wrote Gloria while performing with the Monarchs in Germany in the summer of 1963 at just about the time he turned 18 years old. He started to perform it at the Maritime Hotel when he returned to Belfast and joined up with the Gamblers to form the band Them. He would ad-lib lyrics as he performed, sometimes stretching the song to 15 or 20 minutes. After signing a contract with Dick Rowe and Decca, uh, he then went to London for a recording session at the Decca 3 Studios in West Hampstead on April 5th, 1964. Gloria was one of the seven songs recorded that day. Alan Henderson, the guitar player on the cut, contends that them constituted the first rock group to use two drummers on a recording. Although some sources claim that Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin fame played second guitar, other sources deny this. So that's just going to be one of the... Uh, uh, the great mysteries of rock and roll. Uh, the song was covered by The Doors, who performed it several times in concert in 1966 and 1967, with one of the recordings released on a live She Cried in 1983. It was also released on a single, which, as a single, which reached number 18 on hot mainstream rock tracks and number 71 on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1983. The song is also re included on Legacy, The Absolute Best, and the very best of The Doors albums from 2003 and 2007. Patti Smith has covered the tune and recorded it for her album Horses in 1975. Based on the Van Morrison tune, the lyrics had been adapted from an early poem, Oath. Smith's band had started to play the song live and merged it with the poem by 1974, so the song contained half of Smith's own words. Uh, for the recording of her debut album, Smith and her band recorded the song live and after mixing, chose it as the album's opener. Uh, then in 1993, Van Morrison himself recorded a version with John Lee Hooker, which reached the top 40 in several countries. 
as far as the dead go, this was the first time they ever played the song live in concert. They wound up playing it only a total of 14 times. And they last played it on June 30th, 1995 at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. I was lucky enough to catch it on June 25th, 1992 at Soldier Field uh, here in Chicago. Um, so uh, one of those moments to get to hear them play a classical tune like that, uh, but certainly not the same as hearing it in uh, the Milkweg Club in Amsterdam back in October of 1981. So there you go, back to back, Holly Gully, uh, Gloria, uh, something that's, uh, like I say, uh, just you know, two tunes that they had never played before uh, and uh, great, great stuff. Before we uh, swing back to that thread to follow up on it, uh, it's time to turn to uh, some good news on the uh, legal cannabis front today. Thank you, Dan, and who doesn't love the Bob Seger Band from back in the day? One of the best, always one of the best, Detroit rocker. Okay, folks, here we go. We've been talking about all these politicians and all their nonsense and everything. Today we're just going to focus on good stuff. We're going to leave the politicians out of this. They've they've got enough stuff going on. Uh, They don't need us yelling and screaming about it. So let's dive right in with story number one. Guess what? More good medical news. Medical marijuana linked to lower pain and reduced dependency on opioids and psychiatric prescriptions. Another study shows this is not the same story on this topic that I just read to you a couple of weeks ago. This is a new story, a uh, yet another study uh, that has linked medical marijuana use to lower pain levels and reduced dependence on opioids and other prescription medications. Researchers at the University of Florida carried out a three-month pilot study to assess the efficacy of cannabis among middle-aged and older chronic pain patients. One month after the participants initiated medical marijuana use, they completed surveys detailing the benefits and side effects of the alternative treatment option. The study published this month in the journal Cannabis found that most participants perceive medical cannabis to be overall effective for chronic pain management. The benefits that they reported included reduced pain and anxiety, improved physical and mental functioning, better sleep quality and mood, and less reliance on prescription medications, including opioids and benzodiazepines. Dini, I hope I said that right. Sorry if I didn't. One 51-year-old patient responded that medical cannabis treatment is, quote, pretty damn effective, close quote. Another one said, I'm no longer using my walker. I only take my meds, opioid pain medications, one time a day instead of three, and I haven't had a Xanax in 30 days. Another patient said, it's great. I've never used medical cannabis before. With pain, I haven't had to take my medication, and I've been taking medication for years. All those narcotics and other meds, I was surprised. I didn't know it was going to help me like that. It really works. Patients said that the primary challenge of using marijuana for pain were difficulty finding an effective product or dose and side effects like an undesired high, stomach issues, or limited threshold of pain that cannabis, the limited threshold of pain that cannabis could treat. This study provided preliminary findings that contribute to an improved understanding of individual experiences using medical cannabis for chronic pain management, the authors said. The open-ended interview highlighted information from patient perspectives which may guide future investigations with the longer-term goal of optimizing patient care. Authors went on to say, although improvements in pain management, sleep quality, physical, and mental health were observed, identifying potential side side effects and determining optimal treatment regimens were reported as important, they said. Randomized control trials and long-term prospective studies would provide needed information regarding safety and dosing to promote public safety and to keep up with the increasing interest in medical cannabis as a medication for the treatment of chronic pain. This is one of the latest studies in a growing volume of scientific research showing the therapeutic efficacy of cannabis for pain. For example, a study published by the American Medical Association in February, we talked about this one recently, found that chronic pain patients who received medical marijuana for longer than a month saw significant reductions in prescribed opioids. 
The AMA also released research showing that about one in three chronic pain patients reported using, reported using cannabis as a treatment option. And most of that group has used cannabis as a substitute for other pain medications, including opioids. State-level marijuana legalization is associated with major reductions in the prescribing of opioid codeine, specifically, too, according to a study that leveraged data from the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, our good friends over there. A study that was released last year similarly found that giving people legal access to medical cannabis can help patients reduce their use of opioid painkillers or cease use altogether without compromising quality of life. There's no deficit of anecdotal reports, database studies, and observational analyses that have signaled that some people use cannabis as an alternative to traditional pharmaceutical drugs like opioid-based painkillers and sleep medications. Another study, right? That's our little key phrase around here. Another study, another study, another study. Now we're reading about studies that are quoting the studies that we already talked about. Folks, when you read this stuff, there's no logical way for anyone in any administrative agency uh, involved in the uh, running of this country, in any legislative position uh, elected uh, to help uh, uh manage and run this country, for anyone to be able to tell you with a straight face and with any ounce of intellectual honesty that marijuana is not safe, that marijuana is unknown, that marijuana has no medical efficacy and belongs on schedule one until we, a bunch of people who don't like it because it smells bad, decide otherwise. That's no way to run a government. The University of Florida is basically affirming the results reached by the AMA regarding the link between the use of medical marijuana and reduced pain and reduced dependency on opioids and psychiatric prescriptions. It's not complicated. We rely on a lot less for a lot of other decisions that we make. And maybe if this was the first study, people might say, well, Let's see what other studies flesh out on this topic. But guess what? This is probably the 10th or 20th or 30th of these. We've read so many of them. You can go online and Google hundreds more. They're all consistent across the board. Yes, there's a few outliers uh, that either report that uh, no discernible difference was uh, recognized by the user or some people who say, oh, it produced a, a negative effect in the user. That just goes to the idea that there's no substance out there that's perfect for everybody, right? There's somebody who's allergic to dairy products, to milk, even though we think of milk as potentially being so healthy. Uh, there's people who are allergic to everything, people who are allergic to regular medications uh, that, that, that we take all the time. You know, it, it's just, it doesn't mean that those medications don't still have medical efficacy for the people that need them and rely on them. Marijuana has medical efficacy. Article after article, study after study, and we, you know, we kind of reached a point, I think, where we need to move on beyond these blinders that we keep up around us as we just kind of march lockstep with uh, you know, what the uh, prevailing medical opinion is. And I don't mean to diss doctors here as a whole, uh, but certainly any medical researchers that are working for or on behalf of any of the aforementioned uh, Congress people or uh, uh, agency people who want to try to promote the uh, total myth and fabrication that marijuana has no medical efficacy, shame on them and, uh, you know, crawl back into your holes and find topics that you know a little bit more about and leave the rest of us alone. Next story, and today we're, we're, we're thanking our friends over at Marijuana Moment. Uh, they, along with folks at MJ Biz, regularly uh, turn out to be uh, our primary sources of cannabis news that we share with you, and we thank them for the good job that they do in going out and researching and finding these stories and making them available for guys like me to use with a smirk as I hammer home my point yet again uh, that marijuana is safe. But how about this one? Here's a new study. The American College of Chest Physicians just had a presentation that says cannabis consumers who caught COVID-19 had significantly lower rates of intubation, respiratory failure, and death than people who did not use marijuana, according to a new study 
based on hospital data that was presented this week at the annual conference of, again, the American College of Chest Physicians in Honolulu. Marijuana users had better outcomes and mortality compared to non-users, the study says, suggesting that the observed benefits might result from marijuana's potential to inhibit viral entry into cells and prevent the release of pro-inflammatory cytokines, C-Y-T-O-K-I-N-E-S. If you can pronounce it better than I, God bless you. The significant decrease in mortality and complications warrants further investigation of the association between marijuana use and COVID-19, the report published in a supplement of the Chest Journal says. Authors of the study explained the findings on Wednesday in a presentation along a poster at the annual Chess Conference. Authors analyzed records from 322,214 patients from the National Input Patient Sample, a government database that tracks hospital utilization and outcomes. Of those patients, 2,603, less than 1% said they consumed cannabis. Looking at the two populations separately, marijuana consumers were younger and had higher prevalence of tobacco use, wrote the seven-person research team. People who didn't use marijuana had higher rates of other comorbidities, such as obstructive sleep apnea, obesity, hypertension, and diabetes. Cannabis consumers also had significantly lower health complications related to COVID. On a univariate analysis, marijuana users had significantly lower rates of intubation, 6.8% versus 12%. Acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, 2.1% versus 6%. Acute respiratory failure, 20 failure, 25% versus 52.9%, and severe sepsis with multi-organ failure, 5.8% versus 12%. They also had low, lower in-hospital cardiac arrest, 1.2% versus 2.7%, and mortality, 2.9% versus 13.5%. Using a one-to-one matching analysis, that compared marijuana consumers to non-users by age, race, gender, and 17 other comorbidities, including chronic lung disease, the team found that cannabis consumers had lower rates of intubation, acute respiratory failure, severe sepsis with multi-organ failure, and mortality. Patients who were under 18 or who had information missing from the national database were excluded from the study. While the study uses the phrase smoking cannabis, it also refers to participants who identified as marijuana users. Therefore, it's not clear whether the research is looking exclusively at smoking cannabis or also includes other forms of consumption, such as vaping and edibles. A 2022 laboratory study from researchers at Oregon State University notably found that certain cannabinoids can potentially prevent COVID-19 from entering human cells. Some other doctors, however, including those at UCLA, have noticed that the Oregon study focused on CBGA and CBDA under lab conditions and did not assess marijuana smoking by patients themselves. So that second one uh, is open for discussion still. But look at what we're finding. Smoking marijuana, consuming marijuana, however you choose to do it, at least in studies that we're seeing now, suggest that those people who were consumers uh, had better outcomes. Uh, if they were uh, also uh, infected with COVID. Now, that's something we don't hear a lot of talk about, and maybe it's something we should be talking about. If there was a study that said drinking two beers a day uh, made COVID better for you, you would certainly be hearing all about it. Um, But the government, it seems, you know, does these studies, looks and sees what the outcomes are. Some of them they like to promote, others maybe not so much. And unless you're kind of willing to sit around and dig through uh, news sites like uh, MJ Biz or, or Marijuana Moment or listen to this wonderful podcast, you may not know this information. And, you know, we're all the worse off for it. It doesn't mean you have to smoke marijuana, but by God, doesn't it feel better to at least be fully informed when you're making decisions for you, for your family, for your children, for your parents, whatever the case may be. Uh, it, it's just such an important thing and to have these studies come out one after another, after another, with almost zero setbacks, right? Almost none of the studies that we've seen say, oops, wait, the other guys were wrong. Here's a whole list of things that marijuana is bad uh, for and will um, uh, you know, potentially cause these problems for you. No, all we see is studies talking about the medical benefits uh, in in so many different areas, in so many different ways. Uh, And now 
in one of these, you know, probably wasn't intended to work this way, but guess it does. Uh, we, we see and we talk about uh, people who are coming out with better COVID results. Now, there were studies, some that came out of Israel and Canada right at the very beginning of the pandemic that suggested uh, that certain strains of sativa uh, marijuana were effective in preventing infection because of their actions in inhibiting the ability of the virus to enter the body through the ACE2 pathway, uh, which is the way that it it, did enter. Um, Now, there hasn't been a whole lot of follow-up research on that, and I haven't seen any that necessarily talks about uh, the percentage of people who were regular marijuana users and what their uh, cannabis infection rates turned out to be, Uh, but I also didn't see any studies that, that dispelled that notion. Here in this other study, they're saying, well, maybe it depends if we're talking about CBG or CBD versus THC. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, even with THC, if you're getting a full uh, uh, effect of, uh, of everything that's out there, um, you know, you're, you're picking up some probably some CBD and CBG. Anyway, the entourage effect is the word that I was struggling to come up with there. But, you know, you're getting a lot of that kind of stuff anyway. So, you know, who's to say? I know people that, that smoke cannabis that... Uh, that got uh, COVID. I know a lot of people uh, that do smoke cannabis uh, that never did get it. So, you know, anything is possible, but as studies start to come out and suggest uh, that at a minimum, even if you do have COVID and you're a regular marijuana consumer, uh, you're not going to have it as bad. You're going to have a better outcome than a lot of other people. That's very encouraging. That's very positive. And hopefully we can continue to move forward in a direction where news like that isn't greeted with skepticism, but is instead accepted and embraced by the mainstream medical community. And maybe they can work, you know, with society and figure out a way to determine, you know, just how much these benefits work. Because here's the thing, folks, if it really has those benefits, then we should be really promoting those benefits. Then we should be pushing this and really promoting it. And we can all find ways uh, for people to uh, be able to take THC and ingest it into their bodies without smoking. You don't have to do bong hits. You don't have to do that kind of a thing. You can eat edibles. You can vape. You can use tinctures. You can use patches. There's so many different ways to absorb THC into your body. And if, in fact, uh, they can show uh, that it, it will help minimize or mitigate the uh, symptoms of COVID that you might have if, in, if you catch the, uh, the virus, that's something that everyone should have the opportunity to have access to and to be able to use. And really, the truth is that none of this is surprising because from the very beginning, when I first started going to these meetings you know, back in 2013 and 14, um, and in addition to all the business side of it and, and sales projections and, and all that other stuff, there was always the, the, the medical side of it and the side uh that it you know, wasn't getting enough credit that talks about all the positive impacts uh, that marijuana could have. And, and eventually people recognized and said, you know, look, it's not a surprise. This isn't a miracle because our bodies are hardwired. Our bodies have endocannabinoid systems built in, right? Just like a respiratory system or a, uh, any, a nervous system or, you know, any other system you want, a digestive system you want to talk about in your body, we have endocannabinoid systems. Now, when I go and talk to my dad about it, who went to medical school in the late 1950s, he poo-poos that idea and says, no, there's not. But of course, I don't imagine that in medical school in the 1950s, they were doing a whole lot of studying on the endocannabinoid system, although Raphael Meshulam over in Israel was doing it at that time. Uh, but I don't imagine they were doing a whole lot of studying that here. So I wouldn't expect uh, doctors of my father's generation or even uh, you know, a lot of the more uh, recent vintage doctors to know a whole lot about the endocannabinoid system because they had not received a whole lot of mainstream medical acceptance. But here's the thing. It, it, it shouldn't surprise us and none of it should surprise us because as it turns out that the human use of cannabis for food and fiber and psychoactive effects stretches back millennia millennia, folks, a new paper in the European Journal for Chemistry traces the history of cannabis through thousands of years of contact with mankind, noting the plant's legacy as a source of fiber, nutrition, medicine, spirituality, and pleasure. At the same time, it notes that cannabis is perhaps one of the greatest controversies in contemporary humanity and a key driver of the modern war on drugs. The paper from ancient from ancient Asian relatives to contemporaneity, contemporaneity, boy, they're really testing me today. A review of historical and chemical aspects of cannabis was written by Gabriel Vitor de Lima Marquis and Renata Barbosa de Oliveri of the pharmacy department at the Federal University of 
Minas Geras in Brazil. The cannabis plant appears to have first been used for its fiber as a material for ropes and other manufactured goods, the authors wrote. Use of hemp fiber dates back to approximately 10,000 years ago in ancient Mesopotamia and roughly 6,000 and 5,000 years ago in China and Kazakhstan, respectively. Ancient peoples considered cannabis one of the five main grains, along with rice, soy, barley, and millet, the paper continues. And once stalks were processed into hemp fibers, they became durable materials for ropes, sails and boat riggings, clothing, paper, animal husbandry, and more. Used as a stunner to facilitate the capture of fish, it says. Cannabis is possibly the first plant to be cultivated for non-food purposes. Consuming cannabis for its psychological effects, meanwhile, dates back to about 3,000 years ago, the study says. The first people to use cannabis as both a therapeutic and narcotic tool were from the Indian region circa 1,000 years BCE, mainly because of its religious connotations. The two purposes were often linked. Described in the Vedas as one of the five sacred plants, it was believed to have risen from the drop of Amrita, the sacred sacred nectar that fell from heaven onto earth and was able to bring joy and freedom to those who used it. Marijuana's psychoactive effects were also recorded in the world's oldest pharmacopoeia, the Pen Tsao Ching, the roots of which date back to 2700 BCE. In the Indian region, the paper continues, preparations were used at events ranging from more casual occasions such as weddings and family gatherings, festivals celebrating the coming uh, of the season such as the Holy Festival to uh, ceremonies of important religious nature such as Durga Puja. It is understood that marijuana is as significant and respected for those people as communion wine or sacred hostesses for Christians, authors wrote. For its other facets, other types of medicines use cannabis practically as a panacea, an analgesic, antispasmodic, anticonvulsant, and anti-inflammatory, aphrodisiac and anaphrodisiac, appetite stimulant, treatment of female tract diseases, abortion, abortifacient, inductor of childbirth, among several other applications. The paper's findings challenged fundamental assertions by leading prohibitionists, such as Kevin Sabetov's March Approaches to Marijuana, that outlawing cannabis while permitting alcohol is justified because alcohol has a longer history of use, which, by the way, may be the most stupid argument in the history of the world. One that we know is a killer, one that we know is destroyed the human body. We're going to let that one stay and not the other because we've been using it longer. Brilliant. Just brilliant. The key difference between alcohol and drug prohibition, Sabet wrote in a 2011 op-ed, lies in the substance itself. Alcohol, unlike illegal drugs, has a long history of widespread accepted use in society dating back to before biblical times. Illegal drugs cannot claim such pervasive use by a large part of the planet's population for such, such a long period of time. A, stupid. We just said Kids, if you're going to law school, you make an argument like that, you deserve to be thrown out, okay? But guess what? This study blows that out of the water because it takes cannabis and hemp use back just as far as they want to take alcohol use back. So guess what? We're right there with cannabis, and it does, in fact, uh, have a pervasive use by a large part of the planet's population over such a long period of time. Semitic people also knew about the psychoactive properties in cannabis centuries before the Christian era, using the plant formulations ranging from ointments to external injuries to oral preparations for various ailments and sicknesses of the spirit. It was common in the Mesopotamia Persian region to use cannabis-based incense in certain social rituals, such as funerals, it continues, which is even mentioned in the er- Aramaic version of the Old Testament of the Bible for aromatic and narcotic purposes. While the paper does not take a political position on the legalization of cannabis, it notes that jurisdictions around the world in recent years have moved to legalize or decriminalize the plant, such as South Africa, Canada, Georgia, and Uruguay, and some states in the United States, while others, including Germany, the UK, Chile, New Zealand, and Brazil, have authorized medical products for medical use. Efforts to deconstruct the stigma, legalize the use of the plant, and explore potential therapeutics have been placed in focus over the last six decades due to discoveries related to active principles of cannabis in the 1960s and its promising development for contemporary medicine, the authors wrote.
Humans are, of course, still unraveling the mysteries of the cannabis plant, as the recent explosion in CBD demonstrates. A recent study also shed light on the experience of cannabis when it found that consuming multiple cannabinoids produces a stronger, longer-lasting high than taking pure THC which we just talked about, the entourage effect. And while evolution and selective breedings have traditionally been responsible for changes in the cannabis plant over time, increasingly humans are chartering its course. The U.S. Department of Agriculture recently said that a genetically engineered hemp plant may be safely grown and bred in the United States. I don't know. When you hear this kind of stuff, it's been around as long as we have. We're wired to have it. This is not a surprise. There are people out there who push against it, against it because they have agendas of one kind or another. You and I don't have agendas. We just like to get high, whether by smoking, whether by edibles, whether by tinctures, whether by any of the myriad of ways that are now available for human beings to ingest THC to be able to benefit from its medicinal properties, its psychoactive properties, and anything else uh, that you can get positive out of it. As human beings as a whole, it's time for us to recognize this and to move back to what is our roots, really, and where we are traditionally uh, in civilization, which is an appreciation, a recognition, and a culturally accepted usage of cannabis plants, including those with THC. So that's good news, I would say, today on the marijuana front. More good studies for us uh, that extol the virtues of marijuana and why it's impossible to ever say with a straight face that it has no medical efficacy or known medicinal uh, uses or treatments. Uh, those are just flat-out lies when you hear them, folks. That's just people gaslighting you, blowing smoke up your ass, and trying to come up with reasons why it's not going to be legalized. And the reasons why they don't want it legalized is because they're afraid of it, they don't know any better, and they still believe everything they saw when they saw Reefer Madness. And there's no helping those people other than gently and kindly introducing them uh, through your own actions and uh, your own uh, ability to communicate and interact and perhaps even on a more spiritual level, a, a deeper level than you might otherwise be able to do. And people will eventually see that I know people who smoke marijuana and they seem perfectly normal to me. And then we all will know that it's normal and that it's okay and we'll move on. And that may take more than my lifetime, uh, but right now we can start to push in that direction and really make it happen. I can keep going on that, but once again, I'm getting those signals from uh, uh, producer Dan that says, move your ass along and let's keep this thing going. So enough talking about marijuana. Let's go and talk about the band that you like to smoke marijuana when you listen to, because on this night, October 16th, 1981, the Grateful Dead said hello to an old favorite. Love Light is a Rhythm and Blues song recorded by Bobby Bland in 1961. It was an important R&B pop chart hit for Bland, 
who's become uh, has become one of the most identifiable, one of his most identifiable songs. A variety of artists have recorded it, including the Grateful Dead, who made it part of their concert repertoire. It, the song was written by band leader and arranger Joe Scott, with an additional credit given to Duke Records owner producer Don Roby, aka Dedrick Malone. Scott's bass arrangement up the excitement ante with the groove, picking up momentum as the horns and percussion talk to each other, and Bland's vocals writing on top. In 1967, Turn On Your Love Light became a staple of Grateful Dead concerts. Sung by Pigpen, a 15-minute rendition is on their 1969 double live album, Live Dead. Uh, Pigpen's final performance of Love Light, complete with extended vocal raps, occurred at the Lyceum Theatre in London during one of the final Europe 72 shows. Versions with McKernan were often very long due to long vocal raps, instrumental jams, and drum solos throughout. A version performed at the 1969 Woodstock Festival lasted more than 45 minutes. The Grateful Dead later revived the song in the early 1980s uh, with Bobby doing the singing. Before this show at the Milkwag, the last time the Grateful Dead had played uh, Turn On Your Love Lighting concert was on May 24th, like we said, uh, 74th, the Lyceum Theater. Uh, was the very first time they performed it without Pigpen on lead. That didn't go on to play it a lot after this show, right up until the end. Bobby played it well, but never even tried to rap the pig part that made famous uh, in his extended versions. In other words, there were no box back nitties when Bobby sang it. The Dead wound up playing it a staggering 355 times in concert. It was originally part of the uh, Dark Star, St. Stephen, the 11 Love Light suite of songs that the Dead played constantly during the Primal Dead years in the late 1960s uh, that's featured prominently on the Live Dead album. It was first played on October 4th, 1967 at the O'Keefe Center in Toronto and was last played on June 19th, 1995 at Giants Stadium in New Jersey. When my good buddy Mark from St. Louis started seeing the Dead in 1984, we joked that every time he went to a show, they played Love Light. Not a bad thing to be associated with. Always fun to hear it in concert, even without Pig, uh, that jam and that guitar groove that Jerry and Bobby get in just really makes the thing move. And if you're at a concert and seeing it, uh, it's almost impossible to stay seated when they get rolling playing it. Well, we are coming to the end of our day here. I've got a couple of other things I just want to throw out very quickly. When you are listening to this show on Monday, October 16th, and enjoying this wonderful Grateful Dead show from 42 years ago at the Milky Wag in Amsterdam, uh, I will have just come off of three fish concerts from this coming weekend for me, but this past weekend for you. Um, so again, we're in that weird time zone space where as I'm recording this, I have no idea what they're going to play, but when you're listening to this, you will know everything that I played, but I will be back the following week to talk about the uh, three night run at the United center, the house that Michael Jordan built and give you my thoughts and comments on the shows, the people, the jamming, the weed, and uh, everything else that makes going to a fish concert uh, so much fun and uh, so enjoyable, uh, both for people who fell in love with the band from day one and for those of us that have found it a little bit later on in life uh, after the dead kind of faded out and uh, we uh, had the time and energy to venture back in to the jam band scene. So fish coming up or fish having just performed, uh, please listen to the next show. For a rundown on that, I would also be remiss if I did not give a very special birthday shout out to good buddy Ronnie the Sea from Milwaukee. Another October 16th birthday, a little bit younger than Bob Weir, maybe a year or two there. No, I'm just kidding, Ronnie. He's he's one of us. He's uh, he's he's not quite at that uh, ripe Bob Weir age yet, uh, but he still likes to go to the shows and boogie with the best of them. So happy birthday, Ronnie the Sea. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, I'm going to leave you with the final show of the night at uh, uh, the Milkweg on October 16th, 1981. They close it out with a song that closes out so many dead shows over the years, Sugar Magnolia, one of the best dead tunes of all time, an ultimate show closer, one of my favorites. Always nice to add a little sunshine daydream to your day. The boys jam the hell out of it here. A ten and a half minute version to close out a remarkable one of a kind dead show. Either you were there or you missed it. It's what being a dead head is all about. Luckily, if you missed it, you got archive.org. This is a Charlie Miller version. We know Charlie and thanks, buddy, because this is just fantastic and uh, allows all of us to just continue enjoying this great music so many years later and for so many years to come. So I hope everyone has a great week. Be safe, enjoy yourselves, and as always, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.